0: we come across items which are true to their purpose, but aren't aesthetic enough and vice versa. Uh, to hit the sweet spot in design, you would want to get both of both of them right. What is design thinking really? So given design is merely a combination of what the user wants the object to do and uh, what the user wants the object to look like. Uh, today's session will be presented by Pranav Sharma. Pranav Sharma is a partner with the math company, and he's leading analytical transformations and artificial intelligence transformations for a bunch of our marquee clients, including three of the Fortune 50 organizations. He's a multifaceted personality, besides, be, besides being a practicing data scientist and a design thinking expert. He also happens to be a creative writer and upcoming stand-up artist, so we are going to have a very good time with him. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Shini. Uh, thank you for the kind words. Uh, Also, good morning, uh, good evening and afternoon to all of you, depending on where you guys are joining from. I'm very excited about the session today, so much so that if you hear closely, you can almost hear a faint quiver in my tone and my voice. All right, so what do we have for you uh, today? We will talk very briefly about the principles of design thinking, the why, how and what, basically. And to make it more relevant to our field of work, given most of you are the practitioners or specialists working in this space, we will talk about how these principles can be inculcated in our day-to-day life. Let me start with a question. Do you find something odd in this picture? Shandra says a pillar obstructing entry. A, that's an interesting catch. That's something I did think of, okay? Anything else? Nothing as of. Okay, well, that's fine. I don't think doors is an area of interest for a lot of people on the call today then. Uh, but anyway, uh, As you can some of you can see if you if you inspect this picture a little closely is that the choice between the push and pull having a horizontal bar prompts the mind to push a door but the sign says otherwise and i'm sure that you have come across doors with such counterintuitive instructions they're everywhere so much so that there is a term uh, for them it's called as norman doors so these are doors which are so poorly designed that the function of the knock or the handle is not apparent as you walk up to the door uh, a more suitable and a pleasing design would have push doors that have no handle because then there is only one way you can interact with the door horizontal push bar, Uh, a pull operation is represented better with a vertical bar and a knob would direct you to rotate the push or pull uh, depending upon what what door that is. But why are we talking about doors, uh, you may ask? Well, the very principles of design that govern the structure of day-to-day things like a door, they also dictate the design of our complex AI or ML projects that you guys work on. And what really is design? So design is nothing but a combination of form and function. And function dictates the purpose uh, and form dictates the aesthetics of the object. And many times we come across items which are true to their purpose, but aren't aesthetic enough and vice versa. Uh, to hit the sweet spot in design you would want to get both of both of them right what is design thinking really so given design is merely a combination of what the user wants the object to do and uh, what the user wants the object to look like at its core design thinking is nothing but a human-centric and if i may actually a user-centric approach to problem formulation or problem solving and this would become uh, slightly more apparent in the subsequent sections that the user is pretty much at the heart of all things that are designed. But why why do we talk about design thinking in the first place? The reason we do that is because, well, as problems have evolved, and now I speak more uh, in the context of of, uh, relevant contemporary business problems, we have come to the conclusion that these problems are complex, they're layered. There is no one right answer to them. For example, improving profit margins could entail initiatives to sell more via price cuts and promotions, but also it could ask you to uh, reduce your bottom line uh, or overhead costs. Apart from this, we have multiple stakeholders in the world today, a pack size. If you think of a pack size optimization project, uh, it would not only entail the logistics team, which would try to reduce transport costs uh, and increase pack sizes, but the merchandising team would come in and they would want the product to be available to everyone and hence reduce the pack sizes. Enough enough, foreplay. So what really are these principles of or, or paradigms of design thinking? So basically four of them, uh, outcome-based thinking, and it de- depends upon which forum you you go to and where you read, uh, the choice of words or grammar vocabulary could be different. But in general, the the key essence that is captured by the design thinking principles kind of fit in these four themes. So there's outcome-based thinking, there's empathy, there's regenerative ideation, and then there is prototyping. So let's let's talk about them in a little bit of detail. So so outcome-based thinking. Well, this this will entail organisations to approach the transformation in a slightly more strategic way. So your projects will all start by thinking about the outcome. Let me give you an example. So when mothers are purchasing baby food products, they aren't really looking for baby food products as much as they are looking for healthy babies. And and Danone actually ran this ad campaign which spoke about 1,000 days of baby nutrition, which was a very significant way to drive the key outcome that the stakeholder or the user here, which is the mother, was really looking after. And this was, needless to say, a great success. We all have had that English teacher who has in a very strange, quiet baritone asked us the difference between sympathy and empathy. We're talking about putting ourselves in the other person's. Shoes. Let me talk to you about an example. So, MRI machines, they make noise, and they can be very intimidating. Let alone kids, they are intimidating for adults as well. But General Electric, they realized that kids were very scared to go inside these MRI machines. They would move around, they would wiggle around, which would lead to, like, subpar quality of uh, scans. And they were trying to solve this problem so that the kids could be more comfortable in this ecosystem, in this environment. But before I show you what they did, uh, could some of you guys take a, take a shot at what you could have done if you were designing this system to make it more friendly and more appealing for kids? Sandeep, do we have some responses? Yeah, so we
1: have, I think one common theme that I'm seeing here is color, add colors, make it more welcoming, uh, sure. paint cartoons, figures, that's one. Music is another common theme. his mm-hmm. um, gives give incentives for kids to behave well.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. We have an interesting suggestion. We are goggles.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a more uh, deeply rooted question, actually. It just tells me who you are, who you were as a kid, I think. But but anyway, thank you for those perspectives. That is, that is kind of what G did uh, in this case, which was they kind of painted the whole place. They made it more uh, you know playground-like. And this was, of course, well-received by the kids. So let's talk about the next one, regenerative ideation. So it's very tongue twister of a principle, but what it really means is that there are two ways to think about problems, outwards or top down and inwards, the bottom up. Uh, what it ensures is that you bring both these modes of of thinking together. And let me me kind of bring this to light. So if you are charting out factors for a problem statement, you would start with the root and you will look at the branches and factors. So this is outward thinking, where you, where you believe that everything is possible. When you start looking at the factors across their feasibility and uh, start marking off things that are not relevant, this probably bring, brings in the inward-looking nature of, of this thinking. And together, both of them kind of help you uh, build a very important paradigm for design thinking. Uh, let's talk about prototyping. We all understand what it means. I remember I was doing a similar session for, uh, for a bunch of uh, interns, I think a couple of years ago. And I asked the question as to what do you guys understand by prototyping? And I remember one happy lad just came up with an answer, which was, well, the bare minimum that the customer would not shout at us for. And uh, let's take a moment. The the reply sounds juvenile at the least and nonchalant at at the best, but there is definitely merit to what, what he was saying. The idea is that is it possible to give the user a complete working experience at all stages while we develop something so that we don't have significantly humongous iterations. Again, of course, this is a very abstract way to put it, but in case I'm designing something that moves, I would rather have my customer have access to something which is a working prototype at all levels of iteration rather than wait until, like in the first case, the fourth step and then realize what I've built is not really what the customer... All right. So with that in mind, let us do a very quick exercise. If you were to be tasked to design a better user experience for an ATM machine, what would you do? i post that. I will share uh, share a use case from one of the large banking industries.
1: People are saying fingerprint recognition, um, not to take my card along at all. Sure. Okay? Using a mobile app um, at the ATM. Don't ask me whether it's my savings or checking account. <laughs> Say Akash.
0: That is fair. So what it tells me is that we all withdraw money. Uh, and we all are in some way or form affected by this strangely common and banal ritual that we go through every now and then. This is slightly less advanced as some of the features that you guys have recommended. This was probably implemented by Wells Fargo. So this was a customized ATM screen built for the customer. So it, what it does is it remembers what is your most frequently uh, withdrawn amount. Uh, so in this case, as you can see, $60 cash is the most frequently withdrawn cash amount. And what it would do is that it would it would have that handy so that you don't have to provide the amount in case you are. going going to withdraw that same amount. Apart from this, uh, in case you have moved, it will tell you that they have, they notice that your address has changed, and if you need new checks delivered, they would do that. Uh, other features that that uh, have come across are things like can it be can it be informed to the user up upfront what denominations are available in the ATM vestibule, so that you don't have to go through the whole process and then realize that the amount that you're trying to withdraw the bank ATM doesn't have the denominations sufficient to actually uh, deal with that request. Or if the bank ATM is not working, is it possible to let the customer know where the closest ATM machine could be so that the requirement is still dealt with. So that's basically a very, very high-level uh, summary of, of what the four principles or paradigms are. I would like to move on to the next section of this conversation. We're talking about design thinking and analytics. And there are specifically three things that I want to touch about. So first one is the life cycle of an analytics project, and a typical analytics project. Uh, then I want to talk about design thinking examples. And towards the end, I wanted to leave you guys with uh, certain artifacts and rituals which I, over the years, have found useful uh, when it comes to forcing or not forcing at least, but absorbing these principles of design thinking in my day-to-day analytics work. So let's look at the lifecycle of a typical data science project. And, and the reason I say typical is because you might not have all elements, or you might have slightly different elements. But overall, uh, the vocabulary and the grammar of uh, of a lifecycle of, of a project would somewhat look like this. You will start with problem definition, where you will define what the problem statement is. Then you will go to solution design, which would be like, OK, I'm going to decide what the factors are, uh, what kind of a model I would want to use. Then you will go ahead and collect the data, data build a hypothesis, build a model. Uh, if there is a requirement to build a dashboard, you will go ahead and build a dashboard. And then hopefully, if things work fine, you would go ahead and deploy and scale it out to, to other categories or geographies. Let's start with the problem statement, okay? So let's take the case of uh, uh, a bank and the bank has credit card customers. So let's say they have 2 million-odd credit card customers, and for some reason, they are going through high levels of customer churn. In this case, it's 22%. The, The finance team has come back with some market research, which says that it costs seven times the amount of money to acquire a new customer versus retaining an existing customer. Really, the steer from them is to retain existing customers. And their guidance is that if you could bring down the churn from 22% to 11%, we could get to a 2x revenue growth rate, uh, if needed. So if you were, let's say, the principal data scientist in this case, what would you do? Sure, as I said, that there was there are like five stages of, of the life cycle. As I said, I have picked up a few examples, but uh, definitely there are more, more such cases if you think about them. So let's start with uh, the first stage in the project life, problem formulation. And within this, there would be multiple sub-steps, like framing the question, setting up the context, getting clarifications from business, sign off on the project charter. I've chosen one of these steps, let's say, setting the context in this case. So so typically when you start with the, you know, when you want to write down and set the context, you will start with the background, which in this case is, let's say that a large bank is noticing high levels of churn and you would want to reduce the churn to half. The challenge is that the process currently is time intensive, it's manual, and there is no current way to identify. Now contrast this situation uh, with a different scenario where you start uh, with the background and challenge, let's let's keep them the same. But rather than jumping to the output being a predictive model, you decide to go with the outcomes, which in this case was to reduce the churn by 50% uh, to 11% because it was 22% and the estimated savings of, let's say, $1.1 million to marketing initiatives. So there are two things that you have done here. You have added more rigor and more richness to the problem statement in itself because now it is not about something as banal as building a predictive model, but it's actually more aspirational because it's talking about a business transformation. Using this, you realize that a more relevant output for the business is going to be a combination of a plus a BI report for business. And again, of course, the output can be much more than this. But in general, when you start thinking about outcomes, you'd be able to look at the bigger picture and, and arrive at a more relevant output for the top. let's let's move to a to a different example altogether. Let's talk about solution design. And when you're designing uh, the solution, so typically what you would do is you would start with the customer. Uh, uh, you would take all the data that you have. In this case, you're trying to build, let's say a predictive model, and you're trying to design what the solution would look like. So you take all the data about the age, the demographic factors, macroeconomic variables, the usage variables for the customers, historically, changes that you have seen, and then you would probably try and say that, hey, the probability to churn in a particular week is calculated by this model. Now contrast this with a situation where what you're doing is you're thinking about the stakeholder who is, who is the one to gain the most in this case. So you actually look at the customer, you look at the data, but then you realize that the marketing manager who's going to be using your solution, they would need two weeks to tailor the offer for the identity. In a situation like this, what you would end up doing is that you would end up building a model which will predict the probability for a customer to churn two weeks from now. And what you have done is that immediately by, by embedding empathy within your solution, you have made your solution much more relevant for your business stakeholder. Uh, let me let me quickly go through some of these more examples very, very quickly. So let's let's talk about testing hypothesis when you are doing a model design and build. So typically or traditionally, you would look at the data, you will build your hypothesis, and you will do your tests. But again, let's imagine that non-traditionally, you were to start with a hypothesis. You are are completely data agnostic. Then you collect data for the ones that are available. You do your tests. But you also realize that there are certain data elements that you're not even collecting right now. For example, social media reports about customer complaints. So what this process does is that it generates more data. So just by thinking uh, from a perspective of regenerative ideation, or as I would call it, going uh, top down, you have not only tested your hypothesis, but you have generated new data. Uh, let's take another example. Uh, let's say you are building a dashboard and you are designing user stories. Typical uh, layout would be to build a mockup, get the customer to sign off, and then build a dashboard. Now, what if you were to start with something called a decision matrix? What a decision matrix does is that it will it will map out the actions that a customer would, or a user would be taking based on the dashboard, the KPIs that will influence that action. Then you will build something called as a user story, which is nothing but how would the use how would a user of my dashboard navigate across uh, my dashboard? And then you will build the mockups. You will build the you'll work with the customer to actually get the dashboard built. Of course, it will be prototype. But uh, let me ask a very open question: How many of you have? opportunities to build dashboards and the customers have not really used the dashboards to its full potential has anyone had that challenge so a
1: lot of people saying that they have faced such such issues usually you know and in, in, in dashboards becoming over-engineered more omnipresent problem that we would have imagined so i'll probably share these artifacts
0: with you guys towards the end uh, very quickly let me take one more example and then try and draw the, con- the conversation to a, to a to a conclusion when we talk about deployment and scaling you build a model you build a dashboard and you go ahead and deploy it, traditionally but what if you were to think about out, uh, the elements of empathy with your users, you build a model, your dashboard, and you build a prototype. But rather than you go into the business, you use someone called as prototype ambassadors, who will actually go and sell it to the business. I remember, I was doing a project in, in the UK once for a large food retailer, and we we're building a tray size optimization model. I remember walking into a room with 200 odd traders and telling them that, hey, I have a mathematical model that can predict more profitable trade sizes. I was told to, as the British would call it, bugger off because how could I know something or how could maths know something that they have been doing uh, fundamentally over, over a long period of time. And that is why we would, we would want to go the prototype ambassador route because all that this does is that you work with a smaller group of people who help you socialize your work uh, with the larger business groups. And that is definitely much more relevant because their voice will carry more weight than, well, in some cases, ours. All right. So, those were a few examples of, or instances of absorbing the principles of design thinking into our data analytics project. In the spirit of time, what I wanted to leave you guys with is a combination of artifacts and rituals that I have, uh, over the last few years, found useful that you can leverage. Artifacts are basically design templates that can help you keep. Uh, the design thinking paradigms in your projects. And rituals are nothing but practices which or, practices or processes which would enrich uh, your user's overall experience. Uh, so what I've done here is I've charted out a matrix. And certainly, you must be wondering about my love for matrices, uh, with the project lifecycle in the rows and uh, the principles of design thinking in columns. And uh, what I'm doing here is that I'm just marking out artifacts or rituals which I found useful across these cells. So. For when you start thinking about outcomes uh, within the problem definition life cycle of a project, I have found this problem summary template to be quite, quite useful. Again, the structure of the artifact is not necessary as much as the necessity of the artifact. Uh, what it does is that it, it kind of constrains me to think about the context, the challenge, the output that we would deliver, and more importantly, the outcome that we would be delivering. I would fill this, or I would even ask my stakeholder to fill this for a particular project and definitely iterations over this can help me get a better understanding of the problem, but more importantly, helps me to think about the outcomes, the quantifiable uh, impact that the project would create. And you can even capture the geography that you will be working on the right hand side. Let me take well, a few more. So let's talk about this stakeholder summary. Don't get bogged down by the, the complicated uh, design, but overall think about the stakeholders and expectations in the table at the bottom. So we'll start with the designation of the various stakeholders. What is the role in the project? and what are their expectations going to be from, from this project. In this case, let's say when we talk about the marketing manager, the expectation is to be able to get predictions in advance. In this case, let's say two weeks in advance to design offers for the high-risk customers. So again, sometimes some of these aspects get missed. But when we, when we force ourselves to think about these artifacts and processes, uh, they kind of become apparent uh, rather than being latent. All right. right, let's look at the decision matrix, which is well. This is just basically a table on steroids, if I might say. so. Uh, and all it is doing is it is saying that, for my dashboard, can you tell me what are the actions or the outcomes that will be driven, who are the users who will be involved, and what are the KPIs that will be used? Using this, before I do the mock-up, helps me think about whether my dashboard will be useful or at least my stakeholders realize what actions or outcomes will be driven out of uh, out of my dashboard prototyping uh, in the dashboard development stage uh, mo- as most of you guys you are sharing your perspective that uh, you know a lot of your dashboards have not been used uh, the way that you would have wanted them to be used. So one way is to start with the decision matrix, defining the actions. The second reactive way is to, to look at usage stats. And uh, this is just a ritual, and there is no specific artifact for doing this. But in general, what you're really doing here is that you're looking at, uh, you have a bunch of dashboards and you're capturing the total number of views, the number of users, and you can have predefined metrics. And then you should draw out insights out of this to see which dashboards are being used which dashboards are not being used. Uh, are there certain actions that can be driven from a steering committee to increase the usage or uh, for certain dashboards in general, in, in case you need to go back and close certain dashboards in case you need to like build new dashboards overall. So this this helps you uh, helps you do that. Okay, and then uh, there's something called as drop-in sessions and uh, This again is a ritual, it's not really an artifact. A lot of times I have realized historically is that when we build either a dashboard or any solution, be it a model in general, a bunch of users don't use it because they have queries or they have questions, but they just don't make themselves available to ask those queries. So what you would do is you would arrange or organize something called as a drop-in session, which would be like a post-rollout clarification session if you might want to call it. Uh, You can set up a table through the working day uh, and the users can drop in anytime they want with a query. You can collate, aggregate feedback, you will find insights which will be relevant for you to take back uh, to your stakeholders to see why certain dashboards are being used, why certain dashboards are not being used, why dashboards are being used more than uh, you would have wanted in general. So yeah, so that's again, as I said, just a very high level uh, bunch of artifacts and rituals that you can use. And clearly the list is not limited to this. I've just mentioned a few more uh, of them. And uh, apart from these, I've noted down a few more like the factor map or the hypothesis matrix, KPI summary templates, dashboard mockups, all of these will help you build more context about the problem statement. Uh, When you're doing prototyping, model pilot by category is a ritual which you should do so that you start with one category, build prototype ambassadors, and then uh, move on. Again, the idea is not to force you to use every single element from this artifact maybe. Uh, and uh, this this document can become like a living, breathing document that you can refine both in quality and in scope per your project, per your business need. How you use it is definitely up to you. Uh, some some might find uh, certain elements not necessary for them, and they would take it off. And you can even uh, you know evolve your artifacts over over time. So I will just stop here. Actually, it has been a fairly long rant for me.
1: Uh, so Pranav, um, Ranjit had initially asked. Right. Um, how do, how do we know which design works best? design is assumptive and perspective driven
0: so when you say design i'm not sure if you're referring to a specific artifact in general but but overall when you when you leverage the elements of prototyping you would know from your customers whether the design is working or not and through through rapid prototyping you can you can definitely identify or hone down on the design that works the best for your project
1: lekha asks another question are all these artifacts generally required
0: not necessarily so all these artifacts are definitely not required as i said uh, you can build this over a period of time works best for you in some cases when you're running multiple projects with a large team it might be actually useful for you to have some form of standardization that can make things be more efficient so in which case you might want to standardize a few things but but definitely all these artifacts are not necessary but uh, depending upon the project or your portfolio projects you can define the most relevant ones for yourself
1: so Akash um, asked the specific questions and what, what are some of the challenges that you've faced in executing this, this particular approach?
0: So one challenge is getting buy-in from your stakeholders and from your customers. But in general, what I've realized is that whenever you establish a structured approach of doing things, the first challenge comes in from people who wouldn't want to follow it. So I generally use a small prototype, as I said before, as an example that serves, serves to say that, Hey, this process works. I try and get testimonials from stakeholders justifying that, Hey, this process works. And then it becomes easy for me to get buy-in from a larger group of people. Cool. I think I'll quickly do a very uh, quick recap of what we discussed. The principles of design thinking can definitely help tailor richer solutions. Uh, You can build design thinking interventions, uh, rather design interventions, to leverage them uh, in your day-to-day work. And a combination of artifacts and rituals can help bring these paradigms to life. Again, the choice of what artifacts or rituals you want to use, it depends upon you both in terms of scale uh, as well as uh, diversity. So if there are no other questions or thoughts uh, i would just want to leave you guys with a with a thought from ideo which is pioneering uh, a lot of work in the design thinking space you guys should read about ideo so if a picture is worth a thousand words a prototype is worth a thousand meetings unless you love meetings of course in which case it falls flat unfortunately but yeah i think that's uh, pretty much it from me uh, thank you everyone
1: for your time and for your participation there's one last question again from ranjit if you can take that um so how, how to get a team comfortable with the current way of problem solving to move to a design thinking based approach? Um, it's a good question.
0: I think, uh, I think the best way to do that is, is to show value that it has been driving. And I think quantifiable metrics like uh, standardizing approach across the entire team would cut down the amount of time uh, that you would spend on certain processes. It would cut down the amount of time taken for the leads to, to review certain projects. Uh, It would cut down the amount of time, for example, that you would have taken to get to agreement with your stakeholders on what exactly needs to be done. Apart from this, uh, there would be output metrics like uh, your dashboards in general will show stark increase in consumption from your stakeholders just because you you exercise some of those elements upfront as part of your problem solving exercise. And those can become strong empirical indicators that, uh, you know, this process or this solution is working. Of course, you can experiment with, with certain elements, but overall, using these uh, empirical indicators can can help your, help your team feel more confident about the process.
1: Great, Pranam. I think that's pretty much the number of questions. Okay, I have one more question from Samrit. Uh, is there any platform where we can, you know, access these artifacts is what he asks.
0: Well, I think we can share them probably uh, with Nish and and uh, yep. we can probably share them for people who want it. Maybe they can leave a comment in the chat and they can share it with the folks who are looking forward for these artifacts. These are not like proprietary artifacts. They just, you can come up with them. It's just, you know, tables and boxes is what they are at the end of it. All right. I think if there's nothing else, then maybe we will drop off Shini, Vignesh, any other thoughts from you guys? Yes. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that Pranav. Thanks a lot, everybody. We hope that, you know, some small way, shape or form changes start coming into your analytics teams where these artifacts and rituals start getting used in in spirit of it rather than the word of it. Thank you.